I greet you this morning in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's good to see you gathered here in the Faith and Arts Center along with those who joined us online. Uh, Today we are beginning our summer worship series titled, I Believe. We're going to be exploring the basics of the Christian faith as expressed in the Apostles' Creed. Our scripture lesson today comes from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. This is one of the earliest creeds of the church. And it states, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Dean Hammer published a controversial book in 2004 with the title, The God Gene. The behavioral geneticist at the National Cancer Institute believed he had discovered a genetic basis for human faith. In case you're interested, it is the VMAT2 gene, which he saw as being responsible for personal spirituality and human transcendence. It caused a great deal of debate over the past two decades between both scientists and theologians, and I am in no way qualified to express my opinion, but I do find it intriguing that maybe on our most basic level, God has hardwired us for faith. In the history of the world, every culture in any time or place had religious beliefs. There's something intuitive within us that wants to worship and to follow something greater than ourselves. Over the next two months, we're going to be considering the statement, I believe. But that statement is incomplete without the direct object of what we believe. What are the core tenets of the Christian faith, the heart of who we are and whose we are? A fellow pastor tells a story of having a conversation with a woman in the church who asked the question, what am I supposed to believe? And she went on to say that a friend of hers had just joined an independent church and there was a list of things she had to say she believed before she could become a member. And the woman said, I don't know what I believe. The pastor, later reflecting on that discussion, said, this woman did not join the church by confession of faith, she joined by confusion of faith which is a mildly humorous punchline for a serious topic, a lot of people would be hard-pressed to say to someone who asked them what they believed, this is what I believe as a Christian. And as we teach the confirmation class, sometimes we say, I believe with a period, sometimes with an exclamation mark, sometimes with a question mark, But maybe it'd be even better to have ellipses after I believe. Those are the three dots, which means there's more left to be said. If we're growing and maturing as Christians, what we believe is always under construction as we learn and grow as the body of Jesus Christ. The word creed comes from the Latin term credo, and it simply means I believe. And a creed is a succinct statement of beliefs and an affirmation of faith. And creeds are scattered throughout the Bible. In Jewish tradition, 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, is the very heart of Judaism. It is known as the Shema, which in Hebrew means hear. And Jesus himself said it was the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In the New Testament church, perhaps the earliest and most succinct creed was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of my life. Jesus is Lord of the church. Jesus is Lord of the cosmos. We heard that today in our scripture lesson from Romans chapter 10, a slightly more expanded version which says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One of the most expansive creeds in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul wrote to the church and said, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. And Paul goes on to list a series of post-resurrection appearances. Over the millennia, the church has also written creeds. They vary in content as well as in emphasis. If you pick up a United Methodist hymnal and flip to the back, there are nine different creeds back there. There's the Nicene Creed, a modern affirmation of faith, a statement of faith of the United Church of Christ, a statement of faith of the Korean Methodist Church, a social affirmation, and there's not one but two different versions of the Apostles' Creed. There's a traditional version that we use here in our contemporary service, and there's an ecumenical version that is written in more contemporary English. This is a creed that has been used by the church in one form or fashion since about 200, if not earlier, A.D. And it's called the Apostles' Creed because it's been associated with those 12 followers of Jesus Christ that he called originally in his public ministry. We believe it probably emerged not with theologians sitting down to write a creed, but as an act of worship. That when confirmands came to be baptized into the faith, they were asked three questions shaped by our understanding of the Trinity. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? And do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Over the years, the church added other essential beliefs to that creed, and we'll look at each of those in turn in the coming weeks. Do you believe in the Holy Catholic Church, small c, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting? And the Apostles' Creed was finalized in about the 7th century A.D., which means we have been using this creed for centuries. And it forms the essence, the central tenets of our faith. Jesus knew that the church would spread. Remember the Great Commission he gave to the disciples, Matthew 28, Go into the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. 
But our Lord probably also knew that as the church spread over geography, over time, encompassing numbers of different cultures and languages and ethnicities and beliefs, that the very things that unite us would also sometimes divide us. Paul struggled with this as he founded his local congregations, and over and again, he had to return to this theme of unity, which is challenging because we live in a world that wants to divide people into us and into them, into me and into you. And we have all sorts of different litmus tests by which we measure others. And look at what the church has become. The church on a worldwide level is divided into Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. There's a Southern Baptist Church and there's a Cooperative Baptist Church. There's Presbyterian PCA and Presbyterian USA. There's denominational and there is non-denominational. And we allow the things of the world to pull us apart. Later in the series, we're going to look at two different phrases in the creed that talks about the Holy Catholic or Universal Church and the communion of saints. And we're reminded that in Christ, we are all one. There's no male nor female. There's not slave nor free. There's not Jew nor Greek. We are one in Jesus Christ. What we see happen on the universal church level also happens within our own denomination. Our clergy and lay people have returned from annual conference in Athens this week. If you've never been to annual conference, it's like your family reunion. It's just that dysfunctional. You gather people together, and we don't always agree on everything, and we have made the news cycle way too often in the past days and weeks and months. But I looked across that room, and there were people who, if you're going to use these titles, and I dislike them, were extremely liberal who are my close friends. And there are people in that same room who are extremely conservative, and they are my close friends. And I don't want to give up any of them because the church is less when we start excluding some and including only a few because we need one another. And call me naive, call me optimistic, call me a Pollyanna, but I think the strength of our denomination is its diversity and the fact that we don't always agree with each other, and that is a microcosm of the body of Jesus Christ. There's a church worldwide, there's United Methodist Church, then there is Northside Church. We're made up of 5,000-plus members, and we are a diverse people. Our mission statement says there's a place for you here at Northside, and we believe that there's a place for everyone. Have you ever noticed when people join the church, we don't take a vote? There are churches that do that. But we believe if somebody comes professing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and want to unite with our congregation, that we welcome them in because we are a church family. And yes, we are dysfunctional as well at times. But what unites us is so much greater than what would divide us. Because ultimately, we're not a human institution. We are a divine creation. There's a statement that uh, some of you are familiar with. We've talked about it previously. It's been ascribed to a number of different church leaders over the years, including Augustine and John Wesley, 
three parts. It says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Consider each of those with me for a moment. First of all, in essentials, unity. I think we would all agree that there are some core beliefs of the Christian faith that we cannot compromise upon without losing the gospel. When our seventh graders go through their confirmation experience, uh, part of what they do at their retreat is to begin to craft their own personal creeds. What do they believe? And they also create a class creed that gets used during the confirmation service. And it always intrigues me what they consider to be essential. Now for some, and here's the challenge, the essentials are very small. For others, they're really big. Several years ago when we were having a drought, there was a church sign that said, too hot to change sign, God good, sin bad, come inside for details. That core is pretty small, too small. But there are other churches that have a really big core. I came across this church on the internet. It's Truth Baptist Church in Atwater, Ohio. This is what it says on their homepage. We are an independent, fundamental, soul-winning, premillennial, evangelistic, pre-tribulation, local church-oriented, King James Version, 1611, believing church. And then they have another page dedicated to their expanded beliefs. That core is really big. What's your core? What's the heart you would not compromise upon? If you ask me, and this is just a real rough approximation, I would say I'd start with the Apostles' Creed. I would also add the great commandments to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The mission of the church is to make disciples. And first and last, the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of my life. In my estimation, that's a pretty good essential to start from. Then in non-essentials, liberty. We're not going to all agree on the same thing. I've got good friends from college, we're friends 40 plus years later, who are Baptist. And we can have rousing conversations about infant baptism versus believer baptism, about once saved, always saved, about church polity, and at the end of the day, I'm pretty well convinced we're all headed in the same direction. We can have conversations about contemporary versus traditional worship. Should you wear a coat and tie when you come to church? Should you wear shorts and a t-shirt when you come to church? Do you prefer PowerPoint or stained glass? I'm not going to wear skinny jeans, so that's not an option. But we can have some liberty. It can be important to you without it being important to me. It can be important to me without it being important to you. One of the great biblical commentators of the previous century, William Barclay, said, there's room in the kingdom of God for a wide variety of beliefs, a wide variety of experiences, a wide variety of ways to worship for all kinds of people and for all nations. In essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, hear the last part, because this one we forget, in all things charity or love. Even when we agree to disagree, the overarching ethic of the Christian faith is love one another. Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper, 
A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, love one another. This is how the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And if we fail that most basic of tests, we're not only destroying the fellowship of the church, we're also destroying our witness to the world about us. What do you believe? What are your essentials? What are your non-essentials? How well do we love? Over the coming weeks, we're going to explore those questions and ask how we grow as disciples of Jesus Christ with the declaration, I believe. And recognize in that statement, it includes orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxis, right practice or living. First and last, love. Let us pray. Gracious God, bind us together. Make us one with each other, one with you, one in ministry to all the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.